Hello and welcome to the Introfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, joined today by Senior Business Reporter Rachel Sapin and Executive Editor John Fiorillo. We are going to be talking about a couple topics today. Uh, we will first be discussing Maine and land-based aquaculture. Uh, some great reporting been done by Rachel uh, and by John. Uh, and then later in the uh, podcast, we'll be talking about climate change with Andrew Mallison. He's a consultant with FishThink. And we'll hear his thoughts on the recent heat wave and what the industry needs to do to both prepare for changing climate and, uh, and make some changes in their business practices to at least not make things worse. So, Rachel, I'm going to go over to you first. Um, we will talk about uh, kingfish maybe more specifically because it is, uh, is new or the news around it is, is fresh. Um, but but uh, land-based aquaculture has been – it sort of found a home uh, or it seemed that it found a home in Maine, the state of Maine in the U.S., and a lot of companies began looking there, uh, citing out places to uh, build their operations, not just salmon operations, but also, uh, in the case of Kingfish Company, a yellowtail kingfish. Now, the Kingfish Company is a Dutch firm. Uh, it's listed on the Oslo Stock Exchange. Uh, it's a, a relatively new company, but it has, uh, has proven to grow commercial grade uh, yellowtail kingfish and that product is uh, is available in major retailers including Whole Foods uh, in the United States so uh, so it's a real company with real ambitions um, tell us a bit then Rachel let's, let's start with kingfish and we'll work our way back about the larger uh, the larger issue of, of whether or not Maine's going to be the future of land base but what happened this week with kingfish this week, um, Kingfish had to kind of wait out uh, the town of Jonesport in Maine, the town where they're going to be uh, building this project. They're like one permit away from from getting it off the ground. So they're really close to their land-based facility, um, you know, becoming, uh, being able to undergo construction and become operational. Uh, but they, they did have to wait for uh, the town of Jonesport. They kind of have a local government, uh, home rule style of government. So what the town wanted to have residents vote on was whether to allow uh, aquaculture projects in general to be um, in development in the town of Jonesport. Um, it's a pretty small rural town in Maine. I think it has maybe over 1600 residents. John, I think we looked at that. Uh, but th what they do is they have a meeting and the residents who are registered voters in Jonesport come and they vote at the meeting, yes or no, do they want to have um, aquaculture projects in Maine or do they want to put a six month moratorium on projects, not just Kingfish, but other projects. And um, that moratorium was rejected by 201 to 91 votes. So um, Kingfish does have pretty strong su support in Jonesport and it looks like that project is going to move forward. Um, that's not been the case in other towns where companies operate, uh, such as American Aqua Farms. Last year, that town uh, pushed a similar moratorium, and they, uh, the residents there, approved that. So American Aqua Farms actually did have to deal with a town 
they were in Goldsboro that said they didn't want uh, aquaculture projects at the moment in Maine, that they needed more time to have residents weigh in and consider options. So uh, yeah, I think overall, um, Ohad and his team have done a very good job of, you know, working with residents in Maine and, and really explaining what they're doing. Um, and they've been a really standout company from my reporting in that respect. And that's been so critical for uh, any of these projects is that local engagement. And no matter what the uh, what the project, uh, particularly with aquaculture, it it seems like um, it it's going dealing with the community and dealing with a skeptical community is going to be a part of of any of these uh, projects. Now, it's as you said, American Aqua Farms. Uh, have obviously faced its hurdles. And in addition, Nordic Aqua Farms, uh, which is also planning a project, uh, Whole Oceans also planning a project. Um, these companies have, have faced uh, headwinds as well. Yeah, I don't know if they've faced um, a moratorium like Jonesport and uh, Goldsboro or have, but um, yeah, Nordic Aqua Farms has um, quite a few very vocal uh, groups and residents that have asked um, for the project not to go forward there. There's been a lot more legal battles. Um, we reported last month that Eric Heim left his role with the company um, last, well, I guess it was early this month. Um, and we're not quite sure what he's doing next. So there's been a lot of shakeup over there. Um, and then with Whole Oceans, it's just been an issue of uh you know, when is that project actually going to get off the ground? Uh, because, you know, we're going into five years now with nothing going on over there, uh, but lots of talk of what, what they could be doing. So it seems like they're facing maybe financing issues over there. Right. Uh, yeah. And credit, credit has to be getting tighter. And I think these types of speculative projects are going to be increasingly difficult to, to go make the case for, uh, especially in, in times when there's so much economic uncertainty. John, um, the, the, the NIMBY, not in my backyard uh, crowd is, is certainly uh, active in, in across the seafood industry uh, and ensuring that, um, as I said earlier, connecting with the local uh, residents uh, ensuring that happens is so important to, to uh, projects. But you you wrote a, a comment about uh, about Maine, and you question whether or not it is sort of the uh, kind of the new the new home of American aquaculture uh, that it was uh, that it seemed to be a few years ago. Yeah, I, uh, after Rachel's story on the moratoriums and the increase in moratoriums in the state in these small towns. I went back and, and I looked at our reporting from the very beginning uh, when uh, these projects began to um, announce their development in Maine. And it was quite clear that everybody was riding high. Uh, I mean, politicians, the former governor, now senator, um, some of the uh, state uh, development associations. They were all quick to come out and talk about how this is the future, and and I'm not saying it, it's not the future. Don't get me wrong, but they they were very um, vocal in their support. Fast forward now ooh, four years or so, uh, maybe a little bit longer. Um, they're not 
around, uh, especially the politicians. You're not hearing from them at all. You know, the, the premise of my column was uh, the dream in Maine is now largely a disaster. And I still feel that in the sense that I think expectations were that we would be cranking out some fish by now, even if it was small numbers, uh, you know, that it would begin to be a robust uh, sector there, maybe inspire more uh, um, copycat kind of farms across the state. There's no fish yet. Uh, none. Zero. Zip. Absolutely none. <laughs> so, um, you know, that was, that's kind of what I, yeah, not kind of, that's what I was saying. And, and subsequently, Brian Vinci of the uh, Freshwater Institute uh, wrote a letter that we published and took me to task for it. And basically his, his response was, well, John, these things take time and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And uh, I agree. I, I, <laughs> I know these things take time. I'm not stupid. But I think anybody, if you would have asked them four years ago when, when these projects started or a little over four years ago, I think people would have not anticipated um, the, slow, the slow pace of this. I, I just don't think they did anticipate that. And what they really didn't anticipate was the pitchfork-wielding, torch-bearing crowds of citizens coming out against them. I, I really do believe that they thought they were just going to roll in this with the promise of jobs, yada, 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 and um, not so much. So as Rachel's reporting demonstrated, there's all these uh, moratorium efforts going on in these small towns. And these are small towns, Rachel. Uh, you said 1,600. I, I think it's even less now. The The newest census is something like 1,200 in, in Jonesport, which is fine. Yeah, fine. I live in a small town. It, it's great. <laughs> but, um, you know, these moratoriums, and these moratoriums, let's be clear, they're being pushed by a lobbyist group, a group that generally doesn't represent the kind of salt of the earth um, citizenry that you would kind of think in your mind uh, for a small town. They're, they're, a lot of them tend to be very wealthy um, Mainers who want to protect their view or, you know, whatever they want, NIMBYs, as, as you mentioned. So, anywho, fast forward, and here we are. Um, and it looks like Ohad and the Kingfish uh, Company um, may be the first to succeed in the sense that they raise a fish in Maine. I I hope so. I think I don't know what Ohad has done, but maybe the other ones ought to call them in and study it. Um, but uh, to this point, you know, I still say. The dream is far from realized and is on the knife's edge of a complete disaster. Whole Oceans is a great example. I mean, they're running out of clock. They had a five-year window, I think Rachel just mentioned, to kind of get all the permits, break the ground, get, get, you know, get everything going. They're not. I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like they're close at all, but maybe, maybe they're closer than 
they're revealing. Rachel, what do you think that Ohad uh, Maiman, who's the CEO of Kingfish Company, and uh, and and, uh, and his team, what do you think they did differently in in uh, Jonesport that, uh, as John said, that maybe some of the other companies could learn from? I've just found that that company has been very transparent about its process. Um, it's done a lot of work with the university kind of of Maine, I think, and kind of collaborating on different parts of the project. And I think just generally just being willing to answer questions, um, taking residents' concerns seriously, uh, because, you know, these companies are locating in small towns. So it really is important to get the um, get these towns to back a project. Um, as we've seen, it's just, you know, it really does uh, complicate things if residents uh, start to get concerned about what's going to happen to their water quality or, uh, you know, their quality of life. And those are very valid concerns that I'm sure some residents do have. So I am not quite certain what OHA did differently, but my guess is, you know, just really um, taking the residents' concerns seriously um, and really trying to address them, uh, you know, and, and work with them. I wonder what extent, and this is pure conjecture, but I wonder to what extent um, kingfish raising a non-salmonid species, not raising salmon, has anything to do with it as well. Um, and I say that because Maine is a state that has wild salmon, very, very few, but, uh, and it's it's a, an issue in that state uh, that the salmon have been uh, in decline and have been, uh, populations have been uh, decimated over the years, not as a result of, of aquaculture, but, uh, or even fishing, uh, but loss of habitat primarily. Um, and there's some very, very active uh, groups that are trying to restore uh, restore wild salmon populations in, in Maine. And so I, I'm curious about that because it's certainly that there was not the same community opposition to uh, Atlantic Sapphire, a land-based salmon farmer in Florida, to their mega project. Um, which to me says uh, a couple of things. And one is... Um, understanding culture is so important. Um, John, you have more experience with Maine than certainly than, than I do. Um, is there anything to the character of, uh, of Maine? And I can, uh, you're going to, I'm setting you up to offend a lot of, uh, a lot of people from the great state of Maine, but, um, but better you than me. So what is it about the, uh, maybe the character of people in Maine or culturally, that you think would be easy to overlook if you were going to establish a project in, in that state? Or is there anything particular to, to that state, do you think? First of all, let me say before I say anything that I love Maine. I love the state. I love where I live here on the West Coast. But if I were to live anywhere else in this country, Maine would be in the top uh, two places. So I got nothing against Maine. However, I don't think it <laughs> I don't think it's a salmon versus kingfish thing at all. Um I don't I really don't. I I don't want to say they don't care about salmon, but I don't see that as the issue. The issue is more related to property ownership, um property value, 
um, long-term wealthy Maine folks who want to preserve things the way they are. Um, I, and I'm I'm not saying that these companies didn't understand that culture because I'm sure they did. I mean, they did a lot of OHAD said at one point in one of these stories that they spent a year or more before they even started just kind of researching the permitting process and the lo locality and on all that. So, um, but these things have a weird way of taking on an energy, you know, and um, it, it may just be you got caught up in, like I said, there's a group kind of pushing all these moratoriums. They had a law firm uh, develop a, uh, a boilerplate moratorium uh, resolution that any town can bring before its town council or residents or however they do it. And, um, and you know, they're actively going there. It's kind of, oh, I'm going to offend somebody. It's kind of like ambulance chasing, you know, after an accident, you know, so um, they're going out and trying to get these towns to put up the roadblocks. And the funny thing is, I don't know that the moratoriums would have done anything anyway, because um, the state really controls the water and a lot of it. So that's still unsettled and unclear. But what it does do is it puts this, it develops this idea, this perception that this is a big issue, that it's big corporations coming in and you know, stomping on the little town folk and all that. What I find interesting is that the um, several of the other projects too across the U.S. Um, have chosen kind of you know interesting sort of far flung locations sometimes. And uh, Aqua Bounty uh, is in uh, Indiana or building their project in Indiana, I believe. Am I correct on that? I need to fact check myself. Um, but, uh, and, and then Nordic Aqua Farms also, uh, was working with the city of Humboldt, I believe as well for a location. And so there, there must be communities and states there that, that would be amenable to this kind of development. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense. I think the, the forward movement of aquaculture in the United States is, uh, is just so minuscule and has been so small over, over the entire country's history. And uh, this seems like it's one that has the uh, blessing of, of uh, environmental NGOs. Um, it's got a, a really good kind of local production, low carbon emissions story to tell. So I find it strange and you can bring jobs to not just coastal communities but local communities very remote communities um i find it odd that that more uh more cities and states haven't really jumped on this uh, rachel is there any thoughts as to why we haven't seen efforts in other states that's a really good question actually i yeah i don't know i think it's you know it is still such new technology and I think you know it's just um I think there's only two so many places these projects can go I think I've spoke at least at this point technology wise I think we've spoken with a couple experts on this and really you know the main coast and parts of the California coast um maybe there's some other parts in Washington state and Oregon but there's not a lot of 
places these projects can go to. I, I don't know, um, depending on the type of project you have, where you can locate it. Um, I know Aqua Bounty is building that facility in oh, Ohio. Um, so yeah, you know, maybe when they get that one going, um, we can see more how these projects can exist, um, you know, in the middle of the country. Um, and I, I know there are a few other projects that also um, do some mid, some uh, land-based stuff in the Midwest that also grow the produce. So, you know, I, I think we'll get there, but uh, um, from kind of my years reporting on this, I know the companies that have been wanting to locate in the United States were really pushing to be on one of the coasts. Um, so, yeah, we'll kind of have to see if, like, you know, this kind of backlash to some of the projects maybe um, forces them to be a little more creative with who they talk to, because I'm sure there are some states um, here in the U.S. that would be more amenable than some of these um, main communities they're trying to locate in. But that's the promise, right? That they could put these things anywhere uh, close yeah. to larger markets and, you know, we wouldn't have to fly fish, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so right. I, I guess it comes down to ultimately a water source because this is RAS technology. So assuming you have, you know, a decent water source, whether it's from, you know, offshore, you know, offshore, so to speak, off the coast, or whether it's from an aquifer like uh, down in Florida, um, you should be able to put these pretty much everywhere. And, you know, there's this technology used in shrimp and stuff, and those are scattered in, around in the country. There's one, there's a shrimp farm in L.A. I, I never knew this, but I learned it the other day or a couple of weeks ago. So I think they can go anywhere. Um you know, to Brian Vinci's point in his letter, um, yeah, it is still heavy-duty technology that nobody has worked out quite yet at, to do it at scale for market-size salmon in this case. Um, so, you know, you need a lot of money. And as you guys mentioned a few minutes ago, mark, the lending markets are tight. Um, some people have argued that Atlantic Sapphire struggle has um, soured investors or at least pushed them into the caution category, you know, as far as these projects are concerned. So um, there's so many forces coming into play here, but um, it all looked like it was going to, it all looked like it was going to flourish in Maine. And, you know, here we are. It, it still might. I, I don't say that it won't, but I don't think anybody involved in these projects early on expected this is where they would be at this time in the arc of the project. I, I fully believe they expected to be further down the road and, you know, uh, worrying about how to sell the fish to a retailer rather than how to get a permit from the Jonestown uh, Jonesport town of selectmen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one thing that's important to remember too, is although you can put these anywhere uh, close to, to markets and that's a, a big part of the promise. One of the reasons why Maine is so important is when you begin sort of establishing a new industry, you, you need scale 
And the best way to get scale is to have other companies attracted in other companies doing the same thing in that region. And of course, you have uh, Cook Aquaculture is uh, farming salmon in net pens in Maine. Uh, and they're also not too far away with their operations in Canada. Um, and that, ha- that, that has uh, a, a, a big, big impact on costs because you need feed, most importantly. Uh, you need to have a good, uh, steady source of it. Uh, feed is so expensive that the closer you can get to the feed mills in production, the better off you, you are. Um, now, Scredding, uh, which is the world's largest salmon feed producer, they uh, were um, were looking at uh, developing um, a feed operation in Florida. I think that's still progressing. I don't know exactly where uh, where it sits, but that's um, uh, the, the idea is that that would be uh, for Atlantic Sapphire specifically because its needs would be assuming that it actually gets to that scale, its needs would be so, um, uh, so big. So maybe it is that uh, it's a bit of that chicken and the egg. And maybe we will see farms go knocking on the door of the the city of uh, Homestead, Florida, where Atlantic Sapphire is. So maybe maybe the promise isn't in Maine, but in Florida. I don't know. Moving on to climate change. Joining us today, we have Andrew Malson. He's a principal of FishThink, a seafood consultancy. Andrew has worked across the seafood sector in, uh, in certification, uh, in retail, um, you, you name it. Uh, Andrew, you've been, uh, you've been working in all kinds of sectors. So you bring uh, a viewpoint, um, a kind of a broader viewpoint that I think we, we need when we're talking about uh, climate change. Uh, this week, uh, which is why we decided to talk about this topic, uh, we saw record high temperatures in the UK, uh, in England, and in Scotland. There was no uh, immediate impact on uh, the the farm salmon that are grown in uh, in northern Scotland, um, but there certainly have been lately uh, impacts uh, in the salmon farming sector, especially down in, in New Zealand. Uh, and of course, we've seen algal blooms, which are related to climate, uh, low oxygen, which is related to climate. So, um, so we've we've seen a lot of issues both in aquaculture and in in fisheries. So, Andrew, we're, we're going to hit on a lot of issues here. But first, just how worried should the industry be about climate change? Well, it's a great question, and obviously very topical. Um, and we should be worried. Um, climate change is happening and it has momentum. Even if all the governments got their act together, how likely is that? And even if cars suddenly were able to run on water and cows stopped farting, temperatures are going to continue to increase through to at least mid-century. So the changes we're seeing now are going to continue, even if we made some radical changes today, which we're not. So who knows where it quite this is going to land certainly change is happening and i think the challenge to us all is to become aware of it to plan for it to be adaptable and resilient um but at least i think others are probably more worried you know we we have actually some real strengths and things to talk about in the context of climate change but if you look at land animal farming and i'm going to pretend that salmon isn't farmed on land at the moment just for the sake of the the, the discussion but 
if you think of the stress on land animal farming about providing animals and livestock with drinking water now, about soil erosion, about irrigation for feed. Uh, I was in Utah recently and riding a motorbike, uh, as it happens, and uh, through quite an arid landscape, and I'd see these green patches, and they have massive ir irrigation arms or booms, I don't know what you call these, this structure, and they would be growing grass for pasture for their, for their beef industry, and the only way that grass is going to grow is if they irrigate it. So I, I think others are a lot more worried than we are, um, and uh, yeah, but well, let, let's Let's talk about the opportunities, though, um, if, if I may. Um, I, I think although this animal agriculture sector is probably in the top five main sources of greenhouse gases, uh, depends on which country you're in, but even at a global level, it would be somewhere in that top five. Um, but, but seafood just spanks the other land-based proteins uh, if you look at their contribution to climate impact versus seafood. Uh, People like Ray Hilborn at the University of Washington done some great work on comparisons. Um, the most recent report I saw came from Oceana, which was last September 2021, and again proving the greenhouse gas emissions for seafood are lower than beef. I think it was six times lower compared to beef, but a little less lower, but still lower compared to pork and poultry. So we should be worried. Uh, others are probably more worried. But the flip side of the worry is that we've really got some great talking points when it comes to climate change and how seafood can be a contributor to the solution of mitigating climate impact. Right. This, this story is, is pretty good, as you said, compared with other proteins. So let's talk about, uh, though, mitigating the impacts now. Um, obviously, you've, you've seen all sides of the aquaculture and fisheries sector. So what species are you most concerned about, both farmed and wild fish in the in the coming years as the climate changes? Okay, well, I guess because of the importance of salmon to aquaculture, that would have to be the species you'd be most worried about. And as you mentioned earlier, that we're already seeing sites that have been traditionally operated, cage sites offshore becoming inoperable because of algal blooms or because of temperature increase. And I, I think uh, from memory, Atlantic salmon doesn't do very well over sort of 14 degrees centigrade. So inevitably there's a threat there. Um, and that's gonna have an impact because finding more sites, just moving things up the coast, to, if you're in the Northern hemisphere or further south, if you're in the south, is not usually an option because it's harder to find coastal sites now. The land side is a little bit more resilient to temperature, but is not yet established and also has big energy demands. Uh, so it's not the ideal and easy alternative. So I think salmon is the, is the one to watch, uh, but all, all of them will have impacts. And I think some forward planning as to, well, where is this fish going to be grown if you project what the local water temperature is going to be? Um, the things like crustacea probably more resilient because they're a warm water species anyway. But those those cold water species that are our, in our top five uh, are the biggies. Um, if you look at the wild side, um, I think we're already seeing a shift in distribution of catch. You know, if you go along most coasts, you could probably see that more more warmer habitat species are starting to appear in catches. 
Uh, we're sort of familiar with that. Uh, it's already causing big problems with migration routes. Uh, you probably remember the arguments between Iceland and Norway and Scotland about mackerel because right. the mackerel was swinging a bit further north than they were supposed to. Obviously, nobody told them. Uh, if they, <laughs> somebody did tell them, they didn't listen. But, you know, where are these traditional fisheries going to be if their migration routes start to shift into different jurisdictions? And uh, there's uh, some other more subtle impacts like uh, predators. You know, apparently there was some research I saw from the National Science Foundation uh, came out in May this year. Interestingly, how predators are slower to respond to climate change and temperature change than lower trophic level species that they they prey on. Hmm. So we might find things like anchovita and herring and sprat and some of these small sardine like stocks move further north and the predators are then left without a food supply because they're not quite as adaptive or quick to respond because they have longer life cycles potentially. Tuna may be affected, for example, um, if it doesn't really have its prey resource where it used to be. Uh, so that's a bit of a concern. And there's also the biology of the wild fish, you know, uh, if warmer water in the spring for spring spawning stocks if that triggers spawning earlier, that might mean larvae hatch out before their food supply is ready to be consumed. So larval supply uh, and survival might be prejudiced. So there's, there's a bunch, and that's just off the top of my head sort of thing, there's, there's a bunch of things that potentially would threaten wild fish in uh, its availability, in its species range, um, and obviously the jurisdiction, the fishery management aspect of it. Right. And I think the, the hardest part here is when you hear it can be overwhelming to hear all of these issues and, and, you know, and just think about all these changes that are going to happen, both in the short and long term. Um, but to what extent do you think this is that the industry is even thinking about these things? Because, again, I think for, for all of us, it just feels so big. It feels difficult to, to know kind of on an individual level. Uh, what you can do to uh, prepare. And I can imagine if you're a two, three, ten billion dollar company, it's even more complex. So is is this something just in your conversations with the industry that that people are thinking and talking enough about, or is it just kind of um, just sort of a, a, an issue to kick down the the, the road a bit? Mm, I think I think it varies. you know, as an industry, we're not the most joined up. Um, we're quite fragmented. There's lots of different interest groups, you know, by fishing method or by region. You know, there's not a lot of global cohesion, particularly on the wild fish side. So I think there's an awareness. Uh, the bigger companies are doing something about it. And the first thing to do is to work out what your impact is. And uh, you're probably aware that it's been going for maybe five or six years now, but there's a uh, a protein sustainability report that a group called Collar Fair, F-A-I-R-R, uh, produce. And the most recent one in 2021 is now up to about 60 companies across uh, all sorts of proteins, land-based and uh, aquaculture and fishing. So uh, it's great to see out of all of the, and they, they, the index is made up of a number of things about the yeah, greenhouse gas emissions, but also uh, waste and uh other contributors to sustainability. And MOE uh, came first 
in the 2021 report and Greig came second. So two aquaculture companies leading the world, or at least the 60 companies who joined it. And there were big companies, people like Tyson, you know, poultry producer in the USA, mega companies. Um, and aquaculture is really is coming out on top as the most the, the leaders in the sustainability. And they're doing it by people like Moe producing their reports, measuring their impacts. But there's still a bit of an impediment in as much as methodology is. It's getting a bit more agreed now, but there's still some variability in, well, how actually do you measure impact? How actually do you measure this? And I was really impressed that the Aquaculture Stewardship Council have got a project going to try and establish a methodology for greenhouse gas calculation in, in aquaculture. So uh, I, the answer to your question, I say there's some, but not enough. Uh, we need more transparency, more reporting. And uh, uh, yeah, but so I, I think there's a start, but people need to really be aware that this is their business for the future and their business continuity is going to rely on this for the next couple of decades. Right. Are you seeing technological shifts uh, in aquaculture or fisheries that are that you think can make a difference or uh, companies that are doing uh, anything specifically that you think is a step in the right direction? Yeah, I think so. Um, the, the In broad terms, technology, I mean, well, we, let me just re rephrase that. We need science to be able to understand this, this pressure, this climate pressure. Science needs data. And I, I think generally the industry is getting better at collecting data. Um, sensor technology is better available. And I think this is probably more used in the aquaculture sector, the wild fish, although net data and sensors are more used. Uh, people like Clearwater in Canada have been using seabed scanning sonars to be really targeted about their trawling operations for some time. So I, I think it's out there and I think there's more interested in the uptake of it as it becomes cheaper. And then as you have sensor technology developing to collect all of this data, you've got artificial intelligence at the same time also developing a pace to try and make sense of that data. So I think if we can find, uh, industry can find these solutions, they're emerging, they need support, they need trialing, they need feedback loops to, to make the product better. Uh, I, I think the, the, the bet noir uh, is gonna be genetic modification, because of course, if you had genetically modified salmon, they wouldn't be so sensitive to temperature change potentially. And I know this is what Aqua Bounty is is uh, is looking at. So yeah, that becomes a bit more contentious. But I, I think there is technology out there that is useful already by some companies, but it again needs to get further distributed and used up. You know, I, I know there is a selective breeding project that's been going on uh, with a uh, with a company um, in in Australia, Patuna. Um, for just that exact issue, to to try to breed a salmon that can tolerate some of these higher temperatures. So, um, as you said, it's it's going to be science, and of course, money as well. And I, I think that's one you, you see uh, Salmar, a, a major salmon farming company, and uh, Ockeritz is a large uh, conglomerate across a lot of ocean industries joining up to do uh, an offshore aquaculture uh, um, operation. I think those it's kind of those big bold steps, right? That I think we're gonna um, we're gonna need to see uh, see more of. Um, but as you said, science, and then I think that other component is investment. 
Um, and I think that's where companies, I think that's where, where companies then begin to question how much time, effort, uh, and attention uh, they, they should uh, put into climate uh, mitigation for their companies or cr- climate preparation, maybe we should say. Um, but if, if, if you're to give some, uh, some advice on what companies should be doing practically, um, to prepare, to, uh, to, to be more aware of, uh, of, of what changes uh, are going to happen to their business? What would be your, um, your guidance? Well, I, I guess it depends where they're starting from, but let's say that it's pretty much a blank sheet of paper um, because the, the Collar Fair report was saying more people are reporting now, but still there's, uh, there's quite a gap. So uh, I guess the first thing would be to upskill yourself, to to recruit, to train, to understand the issue, uh, whether you use consultancy, whether you use your in- in-house people, your choice. But you have to have that resource available to understand the implications and have it at a sufficiently senior level. And it's interesting to see how many companies now have chief sustainability officers. I think the seafood sector is a little bit slow to come to this party. I know American Seafood's uh, recruited one last year to do that but um, certainly climate change is a big threat needs to be understood and once you've got the capacity to understand it you've then got to establish your links to the science there's a lot of science there's a lot of consultation going on as to what uh, is this common methodology that everybody's going to use and be judged by so let's have a, a one hymn sheet to be talking from and then organize, you know, th- this affects us all and it should be seen as a pre-competitive thing. You know, you can't have one company saying, well, you know, we can't do anything because our competitors might find out about it. Um, there has to be some understanding that uh, it is pre-competitive. It'll affect everybody. The rising tide floats or sinks or, or boats. Um, and once you've got that, Hopefully, that's going to be probably one of the biggest steps for us to achieve because we're a pretty fractious bunch and it's not, we haven't got a great track record of collaboration. But if we can somehow pull together on that, then the next thing would be to communicate the benefits of seafood, how we are not reliant so much on fresh water, how we don't cause soil erosion, how we have very, very low, particularly wild fish, very low greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, all these benefits that should hopefully persuade government to give the industry more support, hopefully support the financial sector to give the industry more support. So communicate and influence would be the last part of it. But government and the financial sector are not, well, they're going to struggle if they're hearing 100 voices. You know, we, we need to try and speak with one voice and some convening is going to be required, particularly on the on the wild side. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you. And that wraps up this episode of the IntraFish podcast. Remember that you can find our work 24-7 on IntraFish.com where we're covering aquaculture, fisheries, aquatech, seafood processing, and more. You can sign up for our newsletters there. If you're a subscriber, you can get alerts on your favorite topics or companies or people. So visit us there, uh, IntraFish.com. You can also get our headlines on our new app, 
And of course, you can find our podcast, which you obviously already have found. But you can subscribe to us on iTunes, on Spotify, and on Google Play, so that when new episodes do come out, they come directly to your cell phone. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you next time.